Father in heaven, thank you for the blessed day that uh, you have given us. We thank you for bringing us safely to this place. We realize, Lord, that every breath that we take is a gift from you. We thank you for it. We ask that as we study your last message to this planet tonight, that your Holy Spirit will be with us and teach us everything we need to know so that we might live closer and closer to Jesus as we near the moment of his coming. We thank you, Lord, because we can come before your throne and speak with you boldly. What a privilege it is to speak with the king of the universe and to know that you incline your ear in the midst of all your occupations to listen to us. We ask, Lord, that you will bless our study tonight. Bless those who are on the way. Bring them safely as well. And thank you for hearing our prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get directly into the lesson tonight, I want to deal a little bit, at least for five minutes, with the literary structure of what we're going to study tonight. Because once again, unless we understand the literary structure or the order of events, uh, we're not going to be able to understand fully and completely uh, what we're studying tonight. So I want to take a few moments, and what I want to do, first of all, is go to the last verse of Revelation chapter 12. The last verse of Revelation 12 says, And the dragon was wroth, or was angry with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, is not only the climax to chapter 12, but it is the introduction to chapters 13 and 14, because it sets the stage, it tells us what the end time war is all about. It's an introductory summary verse to chapters 13 and 14. In other words, chapter 13 and 14 is going to explain to us how this warfare is going to develop. I want you to imagine Revelation 12, 17, uh, kind of like, um, what, do you, what do you call that? Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the word. That you used, a sieve? Is that the right word, sieve? Huh? Funnel? Oh, that's the word I'm looking for, a funnel. I want you to think of Revelation 12, uh, 17, and its relationship to chapters 13 and 14 as a funnel. Revelation 12, 17 is uh, at the bottom of the funnel. But I don't want you to think that you're going from the top of the funnel down. <laughs> you're going from the bottom of the funnel out. Okay? In other words, Revelation 12, 17 is amplified in Revelation 13 and 14. These two chapters are going to discuss how this warfare develops. Now, with that in mind, we find that this warfare in chapter 13, has two basic stages. There is a sea beast which arises, and of course we've already discussed that that represents what power? It represents the papacy. It's the same as the little horn. It's the same as uh, the man of sin. Uh, and as we'll see tomorrow, I mean not tomorrow, but uh, on Wednesday night, 
it's the same as the harlot of Revelation chapter 17. And then, of course, there's a second beast. And that beast is in chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. And this second beast makes a what? It makes an image to the first beast. In other words, we have two beasts. In Revelation 13, therefore, we find how this warfare is going to take place. This warfare against the remnant who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The devil is going to carry on this warfare by raising up a beast from the sea and by raising up a beast from the earth. And both of these beasts are going to join forces and they're going to oppress God's people. They're going to give a death decree. They're going to forbid buying and selling. Unless you have received what? Unless you have received the mark of the beast. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting in chapter 13. You have the beast, you have the image to the beast, and you have the mark of the beast. Do you see that in chapter 13? All three of those items? Is that clear? You have the beast, you have the image to the beast, and you have the mark of the beast. Now, when you get to chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, here you have a group who are called the 144,000. Unfortunately, in this seminar, we don't have time to talk a lot about the 144,000. All I can tell you is that the number is not literal. It's not exactly 144,000 people. And I can tell you that these are the people who are going to be alive when Jesus comes. It represents those who will be alive when the Lord Jesus comes. It's a much larger group than just 144,000 people. But what I want you to notice is that when Revelation 13, verse 18, comes to an end, a scene, um, or I was going to say a scene is seen. <laughs> That's all right. Sorry about the redundant. Uh, you see a scene where you have 144,000 who are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Now, let me ask you, which Mount Zion must this be? Is this the earthly Mount Zion? No, this is the heavenly Mount Zion. How do we know that? Because this is a worldwide Israel. And what is the Jerusalem of God's people today, according to what we studied in Galatians 4? The Jerusalem of God's people is the Jerusalem above. Are you with me or not? It's not the Jerusalem of that time, the Apostle Paul says. The Jerusalem that we belong to is the Jer Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem that is free. It's like it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that we have come to Mount Zion. Not the earthly Mount Zion, but the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, it says there, where God's people are congregated. In other words, what we have is a group that have gained the victory over the beast, his image, and his mark. So far, so good? Are you with me? Say in unison, are you with me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. All right. Now, the problem that we have here is this. In Revelation 14, verses 6 through 13, 
we have a scene where the three angels are coming to the earth to proclaim God's last day message to the world. Now here's my question. How can this group be victorious in heaven if the three angels' messages have not been proclaimed yet in the sequence of Revelation? Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, the answer to that question is actually very simple. You see, what you have in Revelation chapter 12, 13, 14, and we'll notice in a minute in chapter 15, is a repetition of scenes. Revelation 12, 17 introduces it. It speaks about, generally speaking, the dragon, his wrath with the woman, he goes to make war with the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus. doesn't tell us much. Just give us a broad outline. Then in chapter 13, it's amplified. Let me tell you how it's going to happen. The devil's going to raise up a beast from the sea. He's going to raise up a beast from the earth. And both of them are going to, to join forces, and they're going to impose what? The mark of the beast. And then you have the climax to that whole vision. There was a group who, instead of receiving the mark of the beast receive the seal of God because this group is standing on Mount Zion and they have, have the name of their God written on their foreheads. Are you, stand, are you with me now? But now John says, now wait a minute, yeah, they're victorious here, but now I need to tell you what happened so that they could get there. What did they receive to prepare them to get there? You tell me, what did they receive? The seal of God. But, but what, had, what had to be proclaimed in order to prepare them to be victorious? The three angels' messages. Which is Revelation 14 and verses 6 through 13. Are you with me? Now, lest anybody wonder whether this interpretation is correct, the third angel's message warns against worshiping the beast, his image, or receiving his mark. Are you with me? Now, are these people victorious over the beast, the image, and his mark? In Revelation 14, 1-5? Yes. But how were they victorious? There were three messages that warned them not to worship the beast, nor his image, nor receive the mark. But this is not in strict chronological order. How many of you are understanding what I'm saying? See how important it is to understand the structure? You can't understand Revelation if you read it in a linear fashion. It's impossible. Now, you say, what about Revelation 14 and verses 14 through 20? Well, the fact is, folks, I don't have time to go through these verses. We will later on in the seminar. But Revelation 14, 14 to 20, describes the second coming of Christ. The Son of Man is seated on a what? Now, wait a minute. I thought that the righteous were with Christ on Mount Zion before that. What is John doing here? He's reaching the same what? He's reaching the same climax, basically, that he reached before. And so, he says, Jesus is coming on the clouds, and when he comes, there are grapes where? 
outside the city. Which city? And there are there is um, the harvest of the earth, which is where? Inside the city. Now what do the grapes represent? The wicked. It says so very clearly there. That the wicked are the winepress of God. What does the harvest within the city represent? It represents the saints of God. The faithful. The 144,000 if you please. Those who are alive. Now why do you suppose that the, the grapes gathered around the holy city. And are outside the holy city. They came there on vacation. Why did they come and surround the city? Because they had the intention of what? Of slaying those that were in the city. And by the way, what is the city now? What is Israel now? The church. Where is Jerusalem now? Where is Mount Zion now? Earthly speaking. That's worldwide. Because where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, the time is coming where you're not going to worship at this mountain nor that mountain. He says, whoever worships me is going to worship me in spirit and in truth. And the spirit is present everywhere and so Mount Zion is everywhere. Are you following me? So where do the wicked gather around? Do they gather around the literal city or do they gather around God's people who are all over the world? They're all over the world. You say, how do we know that? Well, because the harlot is all over the world. And the harlot is the enemy of God's people. She's seated on, on what? On multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. By the way, that's the reason why the first angel goes to multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples to warn this group about the harlot. Are you following me? So in other words, in Revelation 14, verse 20, which is a very interesting verse, it speaks about horses coming and trampling the what? The wine press outside the city. Who do you suppose is riding those horses? Well, that must be, um, uh, that must be, what's his name? Osama bin Laden. Isn't he a good candidate for Antichrist? He's a nasty character, isn't he? <laughs> See, uh, there have been so many books written, you know, when Saddam Hussein was... Uh, fighting in the Gulf War. You have all these Christian books coming out. Saddam Hussein is building old Babylon. Maybe he's the Antichrist. And when the Ayatollah Khomeini rose to power, maybe this will be the Antichrist. And you know, when Hitler was doing his thing, maybe this is the Antichrist. And, and when Mussolini was governing, well, other books. Maybe this is the Antichrist. See, in the Bible, you don't have to guess. God didn't structure the Bible, so we have to guess. The Bible set down, uh, sets down these things so that we can understand when, where, and who. And how. Thank you very much. I forgot one of those key questions. Now, what I want you to see is this. Revelation 14.20 reaches the climax. The wicked are around the city. Worldwide city, so to speak. Because, do you know how we know it's a wor worldwide city? Because it says in Revelation 14, the angel is told to put in his sickle in the earth. And it's also, the other angel is told to put in his sickle and harvest the grapes of the earth. Are you with me? So is this a worldwide harvest? It most certainly is. The text makes it very, very clear. But now I want you to notice what happens. And this will be our last point. I didn't want to take this long, but it's 
you see, it's of critical importance for us to understand where to place the three angels' messages. They're at the very heart of the book of Revelation. They're the warning against the beast, against the dragon, against the image to the beast, and against the mark of the beast. Are they important messages? They're life and death messages, folks. They're God's last day message to planet Earth. And then I want you to notice what happens. In Revelation chapter 15 and verses 2 through 4, John once again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reaches the same climax that he had reached in 14, 1 to 5. Let's just read that very quickly. Revelation chapter 15. And I want to read verses 2 to 4. And we will study verse 1 a little bit later on when we deal with the battle of Armageddon. An exciting message, Armageddon. Verse 2 says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory. Over whom? Over the beast. And over his image. And over his mark. And over the number of his name. Standing on the sea of glass, having what? Harps of God. Is this the same group as the 144,000? Sure. It continues saying, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, of God, and the song of the Lamb. That's the same hymn that is sung by those heroes in Revelation 14, 1-5. Now, does this mean that the 144,000 are going to stand on Mount Zion, then they're going to come back to earth to hear the three angels' messages, and then they're going to be on Mount Zion again? Of course not. See, in Revelation 15, 2-4, you reach the same climax that was reached in 14:20, that was reached in 14:1-5, and the whole process of the enmity of 12:17 is developed in chapter 13, is warned against in chapter 14, is described by the wicked surrounding the city at the end of chapter 14, and the victory over these systems is described in chapter 15. How many are understanding what I'm saying? See? Uh, you have to understand the structure. That's why one of, this is one of the principles that we studied on opening night. You know, that opening night lesson wasn't just a fill-in. <laughs> the principles of how to interpret symbols, the literary structure, uh, you know, and, and, and aspects like that are of critical importance. Now, do we know then where to place the three angels' messages? You know, where, they're, where they fit? What is the purpose of the three angels' messages? It's to warn people against whom? Against the beast, his image, and his mark. That is the central purpose. And by the way, if you receive the first angel's message, there's no risk that you're going to receive the punishment of the third. Because the first angel's message is a positive message telling you what you're supposed to do. It says what you're supposed to believe. What you're supposed to practice. Then the second angel says, hey, if you're in a place where the first angel's message isn't being obeyed, get out. And the third angel says, if you don't get out, this is what is going to happen. See, the three angels' messages are sequential, as we noticed in our lesson. First message says, listen, in order to be prepared for end time events, you need to do this, fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is coming. Worship Him created, who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. And then, the second angel says, and if you're in a place where those things are not believed and are not practiced, it's time to what? It's time to get out. And the third angel says, it's urgent that you get out, because if you don't get out, you're going to get the plagues. You see the sequence? 
Now, let's go to our lesson. We can, now that we've seen this, we can go very quickly. Number one. Yeah, right. Oh, people of little faith. <laughs> Number one. In Malachi 4, 4 and 5, God promised to send Elijah before the second coming of Jesus. Where in the Bible would you expect to find this message? Uh, why? Because it's the last book that describes the last events, and so it must speak about the last message from the last prophet. I mean, do you have to have a high IQ to understand that? I don't think so. I understood it, and my IQ isn't very big. Number two. The three angels' messages go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So this message must be what? If the message is worldwide, then Elijah must be what? Worldwide. See how simple it is? You understand the principle? Simple. God's things are easy to understand. Once you know the principles, it's like doing science. Once you know the laws of science... Then you can do experiments. <laughs> if you don't implement the laws, you're in trouble. Pardon me? Because they don't study the structure. They don't, study, they don't have any principles. You know, like, for example, let me just give you an example of, of how people interpret the Bible. They say, listen, in Joel chapter 3 and in the trumpets, it speaks about locusts. And those locusts are helicopters. And you ask them, why are they helicopters? Well, because locusts fly, fly and helicopters do too. Please. What way of interpreting the Bible is that? Another interpretation. They say, uh, you know, that red beast of Revelation 17. That's got to be communism because red is the color of communism. Oh, please. That's not the way to interpret the Bible. You look at what the Bible means by red. The reason why that dragon is red is because it wants to kill God's people. It's filled with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. The Bible explains itself from inside. Let's not accept interpretations, private interpretations that people impose on the Bible. Let's allow the structure, the laws of interpreting symbols, etc., to explain the Bible. Number three. These three messages are consecutive and are proclaimed in order. This is made clear by the fact that after the first angel proclaimed his message, another angel followed, and then a third followed them. Are they sequential? Yes, they are. They're consecutive and sequential. Which means that nobody should proclaim the third until they proclaim the first. Because if you proclaim the third, or even the second, and say, get out of Babylon, people are going to say, why should I? But if you preach the first one first, and they see that where they're at, the principles of the first angel's message are not being followed, then they'll say, oh, I better get out. There's no incentive to get out. If people think that they're fine, the first angel's message shows them that they're not fine. For example, if the first angel tells you that you're supposed to worship the Creator and the sign of the Creator is His Holy Sabbath, and you're in a place where the Sabbath isn't kept, what does that tell you? That tells you get out of there and go to a place where the Sabbath is kept. But you would never go out unless first you knew about the Sabbath in the first angel's message. Now, let's go to number four. These three angels present God's final message to the world. We know this because as soon as they have finished their work, Jesus is seen sitting on a white cloud and coming to harvest the 
on earth. Do you understand why they're God's last day message, the last message? It's because as soon as the third message finishes, Jesus is seen coming on the cloud. They immediately precede what event? The second coming of Jesus. And by the way, if Elijah comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord, this must be the Elijah message. Are you following me? Yeah. <laughs> Are you following me out there? Yes. Okay, that's a little better. <laughs> Number five. These three messages are accompanied by what? By the latter rain. The latter rain means a special outpouring of God's Holy Spirit without measure at the end of time, right before Jesus comes, because these messages have to go to all the world, including the whole Muslim world, is going to hear this, and they're going to make a decision. That's why the total power of the Holy Spirit needs to be poured out. Now, how do we know that the, these messages are accompanied by the latter rain? Because as soon as they finish their work, both the harvest of the earth and the grapes of the earth are what? Ripe. And what was it in the Holy Land that ripened the harvest? It was the latter rain. See, it's so simple. Number six. Receiving or rejecting these messages is a matter of life or death. This can be seen by the fact that those who reject the third angel's message will drink of the wine of the wrath of God poured out full strength, the old King James says, without mixture. In other words, there will be no what? No mercy. Pure justice. Nobody in this world has, has suffered God's pure justice except for maybe the pre-flood civilization, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's some exceptions throughout history. But this is going to be a worldwide outpouring of the full wrath of God without mixture of mercy. The door of mercy has closed when the plagues fall. So we better be sheltered by God. And the three angels' messages tell us how we can prepare to be sheltered by God. Now let's talk about Revelation's striking contrasts. The book of Revelation contains a number of striking contrasts. Notice the following partial list. A pure and an adulterous harlot. The harlots, wine, and the wine of God's wrath. The great city of Babylon and the new Jerusalem. The sea of glass mingled with fire and the lake of fire. Two bodies of water. The what? Is the next one the? The seal of God and the mark of the beast. The ripe harvest of the earth and the fully ripe grapes. You see that the book of Revelation is a book of contrasts? Well, let's notice two other contrasts here in question number two and three. At the beginning of Revelation, of Revelation we are introduced to the what? To the Trinity. First we have the one who is and who was and who is to come. Who is this? God the Father. Next we have the seven spirits. Are there seven Holy Spirits? No. What does number seven indicate? Perfection. This is the perfect spirit is what's being emphasized. There are not seven Holy Spirits. The seven spirits who are before the throne. Finally we have Jesus... Christ, the faithful witness. So does God have a trinity in Revelation? Yes. He does. Does the devil have his trinity? Yes. Oh yes. 
Satan's counterfeit trinity also sends, oh no, that's not the place, a little bit earlier. <laughs> Satan also has a counterfeit trinity composed of the dragon, dragon the beast. beast, and the false prophet. Now let me just digress for a moment here uh, and talk to you a little bit about this counterfeit trinity. The dragon in Revelation is spoken of as the one who is, was, and is to come in chapter 17. Does that ring a bell? Who is called the one who was, is, and is to come? The Father. Not only that, but as the Father gave authority to his Son, the dragon gives his seat and his authority to whom? To the beast. Isn't that it? In other words, the dragon is a counterfeit God the Father. But now let's talk about the beast. Let me ask you, does the beast have a three and a half year ministry? Symbolically speaking. Yes. Does it perform miracles during that period? At the end of its three and a half years, does it receive a deadly wound? Is its deadly wound healed? Does he have great evangelistic success after his wound is healed? Now, isn't that interesting? Who else had a three and a half year ministry? Jesus. At the end of that three and a half year ministry, did he receive a deadly wound? Was the wound healed? And after the healing of the wound, did the movement have great evangelistic success? Hmm. So the beast is a false Christ. By the way, that's why he's called the Antichrist, one who thinks he can take the place of Christ. This must mean that the false prophet or the image to the beast would represent a false what? A false Holy Spirit. Let me just mention two characteristics that are interesting about this false prophet. Number one, this false prophet does not speak for himself. He speaks for whom? For the beast. For whom does the Holy Spirit speak? For Jesus. Furthermore, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit made tongues of fire come from heaven. In Revelation 13, the false prophet makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. Are you understanding this counterfeit trinity a little bit better now? See, God has his true trinity in heaven, and the devil, devil places a counterfeit trinity where? On earth. Now let me ask you, does the heavenly trinity send three end time messages to the world? Does this false trinity also send three counterfeit angels' messages to the world? Yes. That's our next question. In Revelation 14, number 3, the heavenly trinity sends three angels to try and gather as many people as possible on God's side. In Revelation 16, 13, and 14, we are told that Satan's counterfeit trinity also sends three angels to gather as many as possible on whose side? On Satan's side. So you have two trinities, each with their three angels, trying to gather people on their side. Now let me ask you this. If you know what the messages of the true trinity is, the true three angels, the genuine three angels, will you automatically know uh, the counterfeit messages of the counterfeit angels? Yes. So you have to know the truth of God. If you know the truth of the three angels, then you're not going to fall for the counterfeit. 
The true three angels are going to say, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and fountains of waters. Uh, the counterfeit uh, first angel is going to say, Worship whom? Not worship the Creator, but worship the beast. Don't fear God and give glory to Him. Give glory to whom? To the beast. You're not in the hour of the judgment. He's going to say just the opposite. Instead of getting out of Babylon, this messenger, second messenger is going to say what? You're okay. You're fine there. And instead of warning against the beast, his image, and his mark, he's going to encourage people to receive the mark and to stay within the systems represented by the beast and his image. So the final battle has to do with very deeply spiritual issues, doesn't it? Does this sound like uh, the big battle is going to be over the oil in the Middle East? Does this sound like the big battle is going to be the Arabs against the Jews? Listen, folks, the final battle is over the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. It has to do with whether you worship the Creator or not. Keep His holy Sabbath. Because you can't speak of worshiping the Creator without speaking about the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is the sign of the Creator throughout all of Scripture. Even in the new earth, in Revelation 66, and in Isaiah 66, it says that we will go from Sabbath to Sabbath to worship before the Lord. Because the Sabbath has never been changed, except for the little horn who thought he could change the times and the law. Now, let's read the note. The evil spirits are what? Fallen angels. They are the same evil spirits which Jesus cast out while he was on earth. By the way, where did those evil spirits come from? They're fallen angels, aren't they? That fell with whom? With Lucifer, with Satan, that's right. Now, they are said, they are said to come out of the mouth because they are what? They are proclaiming a message. It is words that come out of the mouth. This is why the Apostle Paul spoke of false teachings as doctrines of devils. It goes without saying that if we know what God's three angels teach, then we will be able to detect Satan's counterfeit. So we better know what the three angels' messages are teaching. Now, let's talk about the apocalyptic Elijah's three, three enemies. Do you think the end time Elijah is going to have three enemies? Sure. Didn't John the Baptist? Didn't the historic Elijah have? So would you expect to find three enemies uh, of God's end time Elijah? Of course. Number four. The first enemy of end time Elijah is identified as the great harlot. Was Herodias a harlot? Was Jezebel a harlot? Hmm. But Jezebel and Herodias were individuals. The end time harlot is what? A worldwide system. Because the system sits on multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. That's not one person. This great harlot deceived the nations by her did you read that verse? by her sorceries what is the foundation of sorcery? the same thing as the witchcraft of the Old Testament harlot remember Jezebel was involved in witchcraft? is end time Babylon involved in the same thing? By the way, that's why in the final warning that is given in Revelation 18, it says that Babylon is filled with demons. 
Because Babylon has opened the door to spirits of devils. Now let's go to number five. The second enemy of end time Elijah are whom? The kings of the earth. Was there an enemy king in the Old Testament? What was his name? Ahab. Was there an enemy king of God's Elijah in the New Testament? What was his name? Herod. But in the end time, is it one king or the kings of the whole world? Ah, it's universalized. See? See the principle? It's universalized. Because God's Israel is universal, the enemies of God's Israel are also universal. What a tremendous principle. Now, what do the kings of the earth do? They commit what? Fornication with whom? With the harlot. Is there a union of church and state here? Was there a union of church and state, so to speak, in the days of John the Baptist? Was there in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Number six. This harlot is called the what? The mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. If she is the mother, then she must have? Daughters. And if you read the parallel passage of Revelation 2, 20 to 23... You, I, I suppose you found that very interesting because it speaks about the Middle Ages, Jezebel. And God not only says that he's going to show, throw this Jezebel in her sickbed, actually, the, literally, it says in her deathbed, that's speaking about the deadly wound that the papacy received, but it also says that God is going to kill her what? Her children. See, the harlot has what? Children. So you have a... Did the New Testament harlot have children? Yes? Uh, did the Old Testament harlot have prophets? Isn't it interesting that in Revelation, this uh, third power is called the false prophet, but he's also called the daughters of the harlot? It's picking up on both symbols from both previous Elijahs. Are you following me? Now, let's go to number seven. The harlot sits upon many waters, which means that she reigns over peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Is she the dangerous figure? Is she moving all the strings? Is she in control? Yes, she is. Number eight, the harlot, the kings, and the daughters are also called the what? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These three powers are introduced, as we notice in our structure tonight, in Revelation 12 to 13. They constitute the three parts of end-time Babylon. Did you read Revelation 16, verse 19? It says the great city was split into three parts. And the three parts are the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, according to verse 13 of the same chapter. The dragon symbolizes what? Satan, yes, but the civil power through which uh, Satan attempted to slay Christ when he was born. What civil power was that at that stage in history? It was Rome, the Roman Empire. The beast represents what? We've studied this. The Roman Catholic papacy. The false prophet represents apostate Protestantism in the United States, which reflects many of the teachings of the beast or of the mother. See, the children reflect the beliefs of the mother. Just like in the New Testament, Elijah, the daughter reflects the belief system and the practices and the attitude of the mother. Now, of these three powers, the harlot or the beast is the most dangerous. She sits on the waters, manipulates the kings, gives wine, and is filled with the blood of the saints 
of Jesus. So is it important to speak about this system? And by the way, I'm not, uh, I'm not demeaning anybody who, who is in this system. Far be it uh, for me, from me to, to do something like this, to criticize individuals in this system. Uh, God has many true children in this system. If he didn't have children, he wouldn't say, come out of her, my people. <laughs> See, he says, come out of her, my people. This is another evidence that this first that this angel of Revelation 18 is Christ. Not only because it says that the whole earth was filled with his glory, but his announcement is, come out of her, my people. Did you catch that? This is Jesus. I guess if it's a message of Jesus, we might as well listen. <laughs> no more important message than a message that Jesus can deliver. Number nine, John saw the harlot what? Drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The word martyr in the New Testament um, is marturos. It's the same word that is translated testimony. The martyr, when he dies, he gives what? He gives testimony. He gives witness. See, it's translated also witness in the New Testament. In other words, he gives witness to Jesus as he's being slain because he believes and accepts the truth. He's a martyr. He's a witness. He's giving testimony about his faithfulness to Jesus. And by the way, every martyr who dies is a conqueror. Do you know why? Because, because when he has to be killed by Satan, it's because Satan was not able to change his mind. Or her mind. Every martyr who dies, they die because they are what? Faithful unto death. Which means that they die victorious. And I'm not talking about the martyrs of the Middle East kind. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are killed because of their relationship with Christ. Okay, let's talk about the first angel's message. The first angel proclaims the everlasting gospel to all humanity. Was that proclaimed by Elijah? Remember what Elijah did? He restored what? The altar of sacrifice. What was he trying to say? He was restoring the true what? The true of gospel of forgiveness only through Jesus in figure. Now let's read the note. Very important. The, the gospel is everlasting because Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Isn't that wonderful? See, sin did not catch God by surprise. God didn't say, uh oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> God had a plan. In case man should sin, God had a plan to take care of it. Now the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that we might have the gift of everlasting life. I want, you to I want to just digress here for a moment. The interesting thing is that uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, God was in a very tough spot. Because God had said that if they ate from the tree, they would surely what? Die. Then the devil would say, liar. Besides, they sinned. Justice demands that they be punished. But then if God says, okay, I'm going to destroy them, the devil would say, how can a God of love destroy his creatures? Are you understanding the dilemma of God? If you destroy them, you don't love them. But if you don't destroy them, you're not just. Because justice demands a sentence. How could God resolve this problem? Very simply, by offering Jesus 
to take our place. And by the way, only Jesus could take our place because only Jesus created us all. Do you realize that Jesus created the whole human race? When he created Adam and Eve, do, does everybody on planet Earth come from Adam and Eve? Yes. So if everybody comes from Adam and Eve and Jesus created Adam and Eve, we were all created by Jesus. Larry? Sure. In, in other words, Jesus uh, gave his life because he was bearing your sins and mine. In other words, he was not suffering death because of his sins. He had chosen to take your sins and my sins. That's why he went to the cross. And by the way, if you read in the note, you'll notice that Jesus, three times when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he begged that his father would take the cup out of his hand. Isn't that strange terminology? Take the cup, remove this cup. What was in the cup? The wrath of God. Now, wait a minute. Who should have suffered the wrath of God? We should. But Jesus drank it in our place. I guess that means that anybody who drinks it at the end of time is because they did not receive Jesus, who drank it in their place. So the whole issue is whether you truly receive Jesus or not in the great controversy between good and evil. Well, we have to move on. I wish I, I could take an hour just to talk about this note. It's a fantastic note, the gospel, the power of the gospel. It is the glorious news that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. By the way, his father gave him that cup according to John 18, verse 11. Because Jesus had chosen to take our place. Listen, that's why the first angel's message begins with the everlasting gospel because the ever everlasting gospel is the motivating force. When you see what Jesus has done for you, it's easy to fear God and give glory to him. No, no problem. That's why the everlasting gospel comes first. Because when you see what Jesus has done for you, it's easy for you to do for Jesus. Unfortunately, many Christians today just see, a, see the cross as a cheap way of getting off the hook. And they don't see how much sin costs, how much it made Jesus suffer. You see, when you see Jesus hanging on the cross and crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you see him sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane, you can understand how terrible sin is. And as you continue looking upon Jesus, you won't want anything more to do with sin. The reason we sin is because we take our eyes off of Jesus. Well, let's continue here. It is the wonderful news that Jesus took the curse of death upon himself that we might live. It is the incredible news that Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is the mind-boggling news that whoever believes in him will not perish but receive everlasting life. Oh, man. What a wonderful message. Number two. The first angel also calls upon earthlings to what? Fear God. Did you read that note? It's a very important note, and you should read the verses that go along with it. Fearing God does not mean that we are afraid of Him. Because if you looked up the verse, Psalm 211, joy and the fear of the Lord are frequently coupled together in the Old Testament. <laughs> See, you can fear the Lord and be filled with joy. The expression is like a diamond with many edges. Its basic meaning is to have a deep respect and awe for God. See, that people have lost their respect for God today. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God on earth. It's as if God did not exist. By the way, it's the same expression that's used in the Bible to speak about fearing our parents. Does that mean we're supposed to be afraid of our parents? No. no. It means that we're supposed to have them in awe. 
and in respect. Fearing God includes the idea of loving God and keeping what? His commandments. In fact, do you know the first time in the Bible that the expression fear God appears? No. First time is when God asked Abraham to offer his son. The reference is there. Genesis 22, verse 12. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and offer him on Mount Moriah. And Abraham goes, and he raises the knife. When he's about to plunge the knife in, the angel holds back his hand, and God says, now I know you fear me. Isn't that interesting? Fearing God means performing even the most difficult duties because we love God more than our own family. Amazing. It also means hating evil. I hope you read those verses. It means serving God. It means cleaving to Him. That's the same word that's used to speak about Adam leaving father and mother and cleaving unto his wife. See, it's a closeness. See, it's a fear that is close, that makes you close. It's a deep respect. It also means respecting his name and bowing in humility before him. I've been meaning to write to Dr. Laura for some time now because she wrote this book on the Ten Commandments. But every time on the radio she's saying, gee this and gosh that. That is taking the name of the Lord God in vain. To use the words, the Lord's name in slang. In vain means unnecessarily. The Bible says that the name of God is reverend and holy. That's why in the Adventist church we call pastors pastors, not reverend. Because reverend means worthy to be revered or worthy to be reverenced. No human being is worthy to be reverenced. Only God is. And of course you notice in the New Testament it speaks about uh, serving God acceptably with reverence and godly what? Fear. Because God is a consuming fire. And the Apostle Paul says that we're supposed to uh, cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh that is of our body and our spirit that is our mind. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So fearing God has many different connotations. But the basic idea is serving him and obeying him and cleaving to him because we have him in awe and in respect. In preparation for not receiving the mark of the beast, we need to have this fear of God. Number three, the first angel further calls upon God's people to give glory, glory to him. Let me ask you, how many of you have glory to give to God? You do? I don't have any. Let's continue studying. What is this glory we're supposed to give to God? By the way, the, the Greek word is the word doxazo. Where we get the word doxology from. Giving, see, most people think that giving glory to God means that you're in church, you jump and you dance, you hallelujah, glory to God. <laughs> Sorry, that's totally alien from the biblical concept of what it means to give glory to God. 
Let's continue studying this. Number four. Moses asked God to show him his glory. glory. What did God show Moses? His goodness. And what else? His graciousness and his compassion. What is God's glory? His goodness, his graciousness, his compassion. So if we're gonna so if we're gonna give God glory, we have to be the most compassionate people in the world. We have to be the most loving and kind people in the world. Number five. When Jesus resurrected Lazarus, this was a manifestation of his glory. glory. I'd like to encourage you to look up in a concordance the word glory, and you're going to find that every time that the word glory appears in the Old and New Testament, God is doing something spectacular to help humanity. He's either creating, or he's redeeming, or he's restoring. That is his glory. That's the reason why the resurrection of, of Lazarus was a revelation of Christ's glory. Because God is a God that delights in healing people, in casting out demons, and in, in teaching the, the precepts of God, and having kindness and mercy and love, no matter what your social rank, no matter what your color, no matter what your religion. God is a God who delights in being gracious and good. As the Bible says, he makes his son come out on good and evil, and he sends his rain on righteous and unrighteous. I'm thankful that God isn't like us. There'd be a lot of people without rain. <laughs> Number six. We glorify God when we bear the what? The fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Jesus says, and this is my Father glorified, in that you bear what? Much fruit. Not just a little fruit, much fruit. But in order to produce fruit, we have to be connected with what? With the vine. In order to give glory, we have to receive it first from whom? From Jesus. Notice number seven. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Ah, what does it mean to shine? It means you're producing what? Good works. And now notice the last part of the verse. And what? Glorify your God in heaven. Now that's interesting. You produce the good works, but people glorify God. <laughs> They'll say, oh, that pastor boy, isn't he a wonderful person? Rather, they say, oh, that Pastor, Fo Pastor Bohr, doesn't he serve a wonderful God? Seems like the sun and the moon. When you go outside at night, you see, oh, how beautiful the moon is tonight. Wrong! You've got to say, my, how beautiful the sun is tonight. <laughs> Why? Because the light of the moon is the light of the sun. The glory of the moon is the glory of the sun. And so we, when, when we reflect God's graciousness and God's goodness and God's kindness and God's character, it is not us who are, who are glorified. It is Him. Because the glory that we give God is the glory that came from Him in the first place. Number eight. How do we get this glory? On Sabbath morning we heard the sermon about how we get this glory. By beholding as in a mirror what? The glory of the Lord. We are being transformed. Do you know what the word transformed there is? Metamorphosis. What is a metamorphosis? 
Listen, folks, a metamorphosis is not an improvement on the old. It's totally something totally new. Unless you think that a caterpillar looked like a butterfly. <laughs> In other words, by, by beholding Jesus, we are what? We are changed. See, the reason why we don't, we don't reflect Jesus is because we reflect the television set. See, we reflect that which we, which we behold. We are what we behold. And those people who are not beholding Jesus will end up receiving the mark of the beast. Because this is the preparation for not receiving the mark of the beast, what we're studying. It is only by spending time beholding Jesus in his word that we are transformed into his image and reflect his glory. The first angel continues telling us that the what? Number nine. The hour of God's judgment has come. Now that's important. Did Elijah also proclaim the hour that God's judgment had come that was going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous? He most certainly did. Let's read this very important note. We are to fear God and give glory to Him. Why? Because God is going to what? He's going to judge us. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. The gospel motivates us to fear God and glorify Him. After all, how can we, uh, how can we not honor and glorify Him when we see what He has done for us in His Son? Please notice that the hour of God's judgment arrives before the second and third angel's messages are preached. Are you agreed with that? The first angel says the hour of his judgment will come. Right? The hour of his judgment will come. Does the judgment begin when the first angel's message is proclaimed? Yes. Because the first angel says the hour of his judgment has come. So does the judgment begin before the second and third angels proclaim their message? Yes. So does the judgment take place before Jesus comes? Yes. So is that judgment taking place on earth or in heaven? In heaven. Remember we studied Daniel 7 and Daniel 8? The Son of Man goes to whom? To the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom. In Daniel 8 it says, Unto 2300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Which sanctuary? The heavenly sanctuary. So where is this judgment taking place? It's taking place in heaven. And Daniel 8 even gives us the date when it began. But basically, do you understand why this judgment is before Jesus comes? Can Jesus come before the second and third angel's messages are proclaimed? Of course not, because the second and third angel warn us to not worship the beast in his image so that we're ready when Jesus comes. So if the judgment begins with the message of the first angel, that must mean that the judgment begins before Jesus comes. Simple, right? But there's more. I saw somebody's hand. Yes, Louis. Yes, Revelation 22 verse 12 says, uh, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. So when he comes, he brings his reward, which means that he must have determined the reward before he comes. Good point. Now, let's continue in this note. Another important detail. Furthermore, if God set a certain hour for the judgment to begin, 
then those who died did not go to heaven or hell before that judgment. Or does God take people to heaven and send them to hell before they're judged? Are you understanding me? Listen, if God has set an hour when the judgment begins, it must mean that people did not go to heaven or hell when they died because then they would have been judged already. And by the way, 1 Thessalonians makes it very clear that the dead don't go to heaven when they die because the Bible says that, that those who are alive will not precede those who are asleep to be with the Lord. It says that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive in the room shall be caught up together with them. Why are we being caught up to be together with him if we already were with him when we died? You understand my point? So if the judgment begins at a certain date in heaven, it must mean that nobody was rewarded when they died. In fact, they're rewarded when Jesus comes. The Bible says that when Jesus comes, he brings his reward, which means that nobody received, nobody went to heaven or to hell when they died. Yes. Okay. Those are exceptional cases. Yes. Enoch, Elijah, Moses, and those who resurrected when, uh, when Jesus resurrected in Matthew chapter 27. A group has spoken about them. No, there was a group in Matthew 27, 52, and 53 that also resurrected when Jesus resurrected and they went and bore witness in the city of Jerusalem about his resurrection. Uh, but those are exceptional cases. But even those people, uh, had their names had to go through the judgment when the books of the judgment were opened. <laughs> well, uh, that's not what it says. <laughs> yes. Let me just talk uh, for a moment about that, uh, although we're really behind in the lesson. But uh, it's such an important question that I'm going to take a moment to answer that. Remember the two thieves? There was one that was reviling Jesus. The other one was reviling him. But then suddenly he changed his attitude. And he says, remember me when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now let me tell you where the problem is. In the Bible, you will never find punctuation marks. In fact, I can show you copies of original documents. In fact, there were no separations of words even in the original. Imagine trying to translate something that, is, that does not separate words. You're writing all the letters together, word after word after word. And in Hebrew, you're writing backwards, although they think that we write backwards. But anyway, it's a matter of opinion. But you see... There are no commas, there's no periods, there's no uh, question marks, there's no exclamation points in, in the original text. The translators put the punctuation where they think it belongs. So you can translate that as Jesus saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or it can be translated, Verily, verily, I say unto you today, You will be with me in paradise. Some future time. Now, the best translation is, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The reason is very simple. That day, Jesus did not go to paradise. In fact, the thief didn't even die that day, if you read the Gospels. They had to break his legs. 
So how could he go to paradise with Jesus that very day? Furthermore, on the third day when Jesus resurrected, he said to Mary, Don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. How could it be that this thief went to Jesus to paradise on Friday when on the third day Jesus says, I haven't been there yet? Those are only two points. There are more. But I think that takes care of it, doesn't it? Every one of these texts which is misused has an explanation. And there are a, a significant number of them that people misinterpret. And if you study them carefully, they're not saying what people think they're saying. But that's why we have to study carefully, just like prophecy. We have to study carefully. Somebody told yes. me that Jesus said just today, only today, not forever. It'll be just today. With oh, just today. just today. So he had to go back the next day. <laughs> oh, man. Poor guy. Well, but you all know when Jesus resurrected Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come down. <laughs> oh, maybe Lazarus was a nasty guy. He said, Lazarus, come up. <laughs> what did he say? Lazarus, come forth. Did Lazarus say anything about the short period that he, pa that he spent in heaven? Boy, what a cruel thing if he had gone to heaven for Jesus to make him come back. <laughs> yes, uh, we don't want to get caught up a lot in this state of the dead issue. There's a lot we could say, but, uh, you know, we have to finish the lesson. Yes? I think it was Mark Finley I heard give a good example of that, where Jesus said, Verily, verily, I'm saying unto you today, today while the whole world is reviling me, today while I'm hanging on this tree helpless, Right. to emphasize the point, that he's telling us today, when he's at the bottom of his earthly existence, you might say, that yes, will be with. Yes, and by the way, that's true because this because it, Jesus clearly says um, the thief clearly says, "Remember me when you enter your kingdom." And Jesus hasn't entered his kingdom yet. So anyway, there's there's plenty of evidence that this is not talking about him going that very day with Christ to paradise. Let's go quickly. Number ten. Ooh, man, time is up. Saved by the bell. The first angel goes on to call the whole world to what? Worship. To worship the one who. Made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We worship God because he is our what? Creator. Creator. In Genesis, God created the world in six days and what? Rested. Rested the seventh. Is the Sabbath first given to Israel or is the Sabbath a creation institution? Before there was any sin, before there was any need of the cross of Christ, there was the Sabbath. And you know, I find it very ironic. Sometimes I'll talk to ministers of other faith, faiths. And they'll say, uh, I'll say to them, uh, do you believe that it's okay for a man to marry a man? And immediately, of course, I get a strong reaction. No! Where do you get such an idea? I said, no, don't worry, I agree with you. But then I say, why is it not okay for a man to marry a man? And invariably they say, because God at the beginning made them male and female. And he said that a male and female are supposed to get married. In Genesis it says that God established a man, marriage of a man and a woman. And I say, thank you very much. What else did he establish? The Sabbath. So why do you say marriage, yes, the Sabbath, no? None. There is no answer. Let's go to number 11, 12. The Sabbath is the... A sign that God is the true creator. 
The fourth commandment explains that God instituted the Sabbath that we might what? Know. That we might know. Remember <laughs> that he made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them. Is, is God the creator forever? Yes. So must the sign of him being creator be an eternal sign? Of course. Some say the Sabbath was made only for Israel. The Apostle Paul says that if we are Christ's, we are what? Abraham's seed. And if we're Abraham's seed, we're Israel. Therefore, the Sabbath is for Israel, and the Sabbath is for us. We'll be dealing with more of these Sabbath texts in the next lesson. In Isaiah 66, 22 and 23, we are told that God's people will keep the Sabbath in the new heavens and the new earth. Quickly, second angel's message. The second angel's message tells us that Babylon has fallen. Because she has what? She has made. What does that word indicate? She has made. Forced. Yes. She has made. It doesn't say she offers the wine. She makes people drink the wine. The wine of the what? Of the wrath of her fornication. The reason for Babylon's fall is that she has forced all nations to drink her wine. This wine is called also her what? Her abominations. And what are the abominations she has in her cup? You have a list here. False teachings and false practices. I won't read them. But the greatest of them we'll see in our next lesson is sun worship. The greatest abomination in the Old Testament is worshiping the sun. Number two, in the story of Nadab and Abihu, we find that they were destroyed because they offered common fire before the Lord. How do you suppose God felt when they took common fire and offered it instead of the holy fire? You know, if God accepts Sunday as a day of worship, God is going to have to apologize to Nadab and Abihu. Do you know the story of Nadab and Abihu? You know, God rained fire down on the altar in the court. And then God said to the priests, whenever you go into the sanctuary and you take fire, make sure it's fire from this altar because that's holy fire. I rained that fire down on the altar. Don't take any other kind of fire. That's the holy fire. But Nadab and Abihu were under the influence. If you read the story, they were they drunk wine. Is most of the world going to drink wine at the end of time? Yes, but it's not Ernest and Julio Gallo type of wine. Wine represents false doctrine. But false doctrine goofs up your thinking just like regular, true, regular wine. Spiritually speaking. And so because they were under the influence of wine, they took common fire before the Lord. You know, let me ask you. If you had examined the chemical properties of the fire on the altar and the fire that they took, would the chemical properties be the same? Yeah. Do you think that both fires look the same? Yeah. Do you think that if, uh, uh, if you stuck your finger in both fires, the fire would have burned your finger? Yeah. So why is God so picky here? I mean, you know, they go in and God says, no problem, you. fire is fire, it's okay. Uh-uh. The Bible says that they were destroyed by the glory of the Lord because they offered the common as if it was holy. How do you suppose God feels when Christians take a common day of work and they offer it to God as if it was holy? It's the same principle, folks. God only accepts as holy that which he has sanctified. Sunday can never be holy because in the Bible you never find any place that God says that Sunday is holy. 
Oh, but Jesus resurrected that day. True enough. But the Bible never says you're supposed to keep Sunday because Christ resurrected that day. That is a conjecture of theologians. But it's not what the Bible says. Now I find it ironic. Genesis says keep the Sabbath. Exodus says keep the Sabbath. The prophets kept the Sabbath. Jesus kept the Sabbath. The apostles kept the Sabbath. In Revelation we'll find tomorrow that the great controversy at the end of time is concerning the Sabbath. In the new earth we will keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath from Eden to Eden. God's plan has not changed. And to offer him a common day as a holy day doesn't work. You know why? Because man can't make anything holy. Only God can make things holy. Yeah, that's another interesting story. Okay, we got to move on here. You see what Belshazzar do, did? He used the, the holy vessels to put common wine in, right? And that's what led to his being killed. The book of Revelation reveals, number seven, that the wine of the harlot gives, gives to the nations, fills them with wrath against God's people. Because we are told that the harlot was what? Drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, it's called the wine of the wrath of her fornication because those who don't want to drink the wine are going to be slain by her or she's going to attempt to slay them. Let's go to the third angel's message very quickly. The third angel's message contains the severest warning in all the Bible. There the world is warned not to what? Not to worship the beast, nor his image, nor to receive his mark in the forehead or in his hand. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. Um, who is the beast? The Roman Catholic system. Who is the image? Apostate Protestantism. What is the mark? The first day of the week. Interesting that in Elijah's day they were worshiping the sun god, whereas Christians today worship on Sunday. You say, that's not the same. Yes, it is. Let me ask you, who created the sun? Did he create it for worship? So what happens if you convert the sun into an object of worship? What's that called? Idolatry. Let me ask you, who made the first day of the week? Did he make it for worship? So what happens if you convert it into a day of worship? That's idolatry the same, because idolatry is making anything for worship that God didn't make for worship. Sunday is a working day. It's not a day of worship. So when man declares it a day of worship, that's idolatry, because it's something made by man for worship that God did not make for that purpose. Am I making myself clear? It's the same principle. Now, whoa, we're really behind, aren't we? Should we finish or should we just stop here? Should we go till 8.30? We'll go quickly. Promise. Scouts honor. <laughs> Literal time, not prophetic time. <laughs> Number two. When the third angel's message reaches its conclusion, an announcement is made. Here is the patience of the saints. Do you know why they're going to need patience? Because they're going to go through the tribulation. Here are those who keep the what? Ah, do you hear the Elijah message there? Who keep the commandments of God and the what? Oh, the faith of Jesus. God's people are going to need the faith of Jesus to get through the tribulation, folks. Number three, the wrath of God is poured out of the seven last plagues. This means that those who receive the mark of the beast will experience what? The plagues. How important it is, is it to accept the third angel's message? It's a matter of life and death, folks. Number four, like Elijah, God's people will have to what? Flee from the wrath of their enemies. There are three enemies. 
but their bread and water will be what? Sure. sure. The great tribulation is the period when the seven last plagues are poured out. Like in Elijah's day, there will be famine and pestilence, but God will protect his people. Is this a Christ-centered interpretation of prophecy? See, Jesus is not only our Savior from sin, he will be the Savior from God's people's enemies at the end of time. He will have to intervene to deliver them from this threefold union. Number five, God promised his people in Psalm 91, 10, 11, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Read Psalm 91. This is the tribulation psalm. It describes what God's people are going to go through. It says, a thousand will fall at one side and ten thousand at the other and it will not come near you. Let me ask you, can you go through the tribulation and not experience the wrath of God? Yes, you can. See, this is the fundamental flaw of, of many teachers today. They say, how can God's people go through the tribulation if God's wrath is falling on the earth. Well, the fact is, isn't God powerful enough to protect them in the midst of the outpouring of his wrath? He did in the past. Why can't he do so in the future? By the way, do you know why the devil wants people to believe that the church is going to be taken out of the world before the tribulation? Because the devil knows that the tribulation is going to be the worst period in the history of the world, and he wants people to think that they're not going to go through it so that they don't prepare for it. See, most Christians today, they say, Oh no, peaches and cream here! and peaches and cream there. See, I'm not going to go through the tribulation here. I can enjoy my house, and I can enjoy my money, I can just have a good time, have my cake and eat it too. But what they don't realize is they're going to find themselves in the midst of the tribulation without having the necessary faith and patience to go through it because they did not receive the three angels' messages. Am I making myself clear? Number six. The three enemies of Elijah ended up being eaten by wild beasts. The same will be true of the end time enemies of God's people. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. I want you to remember those words because those are the very same words that are used in the third angel's message. Those that are going to be eaten, of course, it says here, those who reject the third angel's message. We'll study more about this tomorrow. Number seven, the blood of God's people will be what? Remember we read that yesterday? To avenge the blood of God's people from the hand of Jezebel? Well, here it says, the blood of God's people will be avenged. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. In Revelation 14.20, the wicked are symbolized by a winepress full of grapes. Horses are seen trampling the winepress. There, were there horses that trampled someone in the Old Testament and the blood spattered on the horses? Hmm. Of course, all this is a coincidence. I don't think so. We're dealing with typology. What happened with literal Jezebel is going to happen with a worldwide Jezebel. And we'll amplify this greatly when we talk about the sixth plague, the battle of Armageddon. Then we'll See, uh, this is not talking about literal birds flying through the air and the literal birds are going to eat up the people. Uh, you know, it, we're dealing here with symbols. 
And we're going to see later on what these symbols are, what they represent, what the horses represent. Revelation explains who is sitting on the horses that tread the wine press. Yes, Jesus and his heavenly armies, according to Revelation 19. Number nine, like Elijah was taken to heaven on a fiery chariot, God's people will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air at the second coming. Do you long for that day to come? Oh, praise the Lord. We have a, we have a tribulation coming first, though. So we need to be right with God. God's final warning and call before God pours out his wrath upon the earth, a powerful angel brings a last urgent warning. In fact, the whole earth was what? Enlightened with his glory. This is the last urgent call. It's a repetition of the second angel's message telling people, get out, get out! Before it's too late. And like Mount Carmel was illuminated, the whole world will be illuminated with his glory. See, little Mount Carmel is a symbol of a worldwide glory. And what are multitudes going to say when the world is filled with the glory of this angel? Oh, they're going to say like in the days of Elijah, the Lord, he is God. And they're going to come over to the Lord's side. Nobody on the fence that day. Finally, number two, this powerful angel denounces the sins of Babylon and says, come out of her, my people. I like that. Is there hope for Babylon? Yes. No. <laughs> There's hope for God's people in Babylon. That was a tricky question. I should have asked that on true and false. God has many children in Babylon that he's going to rescue for his honor and his glory. Did you enjoy the lesson tonight? Do you understand the final Elijah message better now? Are we going to accept that message? I certainly hope so. Nada, and then we'll have our prayer. Don't leave yet. Christ and his angels, according to Revelation 19, 11 to 14. When we talk about the battle of Armageddon, we'll deal with that. And we're going we're to study the whole last half of Revelation when we deal with Armageddon. And this will become so much clearer. If it's not clear enough right now, it'll be crystal clear. When we talk about, uh, on um, Wednesday night, about uh, Revelation 17 and then the battle of Armageddon. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word. Thank you for warning us about these things. And I ask, Lord, that if there's anybody gathered here tonight who has heard these things and needs to make a decision to come out from where your day is not kept, from where you're not honored, you're not glorified, I ask that you give them the courage to take that step. And those of us who have uh, studied these things, and have uh, come out of Babylon. We ask, Lord, that you will keep us out of Babylon. Because there are many people who claim to serve you, who claim to know this message, and they came out of Babylon, but Babylon hasn't come out of them. I ask, Lord, that you will help Babylon to come out of all of us. We thank you for having been with us, and we ask that you'll be with us as we return home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.